So good morning and thank you for choosing to worship with us today. We're glad that you're here and uh, we're working through the book of Matthew today. We're in chapter 11 verses 20 to 24 today. And here at Trinity, you've heard before that we practice expositional preaching. We're working our way deliberately and intentionally slowly through the book so we can see how it relates to the original audience as well as to us today. So today, again, it's uh, chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, and if you'd like a listening guide, just raise your hand and Alex will bring you one. The listening guide has the main points of the sermon, the sermon text, as well as a spot for you to take notes on. So we're pretty much two-thirds of the way through chapter 11. And as we discussed before, how this uh, book of Matthew is made up of five large discourses with narratives in between. And we're just finishing out the, the, the last part of chapter 11. Moving into chapter 11, we were in the second discourse. And there you might remember that, um, I'm sorry, there you might remember that Matthew is telling his sheep that they're going to be sent out and sent into persecution. And that is what they could expect. They're being sent out in the midst of wolves. And uh, we talked about how that looked and how we should embrace that today. How it is not a case where it is safe for us anywhere in the world. Christians should not feel safe other than in the hands of Jesus. But in the world today, Christians proclaiming the gospel can face persecution and will face persecution. In fact, the beginning of chapter 11, we see how John is an example of this. John the Baptist has been imprisoned which was kicking off Jesus' earthly ministry. And here we see in the beginning of chapter 11 that John sends messengers to Jesus to ask him a very important question. And John's messengers are basically asking, are you the Messiah? And what we can see kind of undergirding that question is John is really asking, not only are you the Messiah, but are you worth it? And that's a question we all ask. Are you worth it, Jesus? Is it worth it to be persecuted? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we get this assurance that it is, in fact, worth it, that Jesus is the Messiah, and everything that is promised to us, if we repent and believe, is true. Jesus says in verse 11 about John that John is the greatest prophet born of a woman. There is none greater than this. John is the last in the long line of prophets proclaiming the coming Messiah, and he fulfills some some pre-runner, some forerunner prophecy from Malachi 4. Malachi tells the people that Elijah will return preceding the day of the Lord, and in Luke 1.17 we read, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is John returning in the power and spirit of Elijah. Well, where's John now? Well, John's in prison by Herod. And the greatest prophet born of a woman is in prison for following Christ. And for that, he will be killed. Jesus sends him word back, essentially saying, I am he. He tells him the blind have received light, sight, The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the dead are raised. 
I am the one you foretold, is what he's telling John. He's telling John what he needs to know. Believe and you will receive the promise. Christ's message is to put your faith in me and you won't be disappointed. But we see in today's message in chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, that many won't receive it, many didn't receive it, and that is how it is today as well. Despite the message of hope, many won't receive it. So let's open God's word together and look at Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24. I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll unpack it together. This is verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Vesida, for if the mighty words... <laughs> Tiny voice. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this, this word. Thank you for your word. We just pray that you would just give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and minds to understand it. I just pray that it would fall fresh upon us today, Lord. May we just receive what you have uh, for us to understand and uh, take that message with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's passage is really a call to repentance for cities that you wouldn't think would need it. And we talk a lot about it repenting as it relates to the Christian walk and how it's necessary for, for growth. And we've received this, this, this gift of Christ and the Holy Spirit to help us through this. The Holy Spirit is continually convicting us of the sin in our lives. And through his power, we are able to obey and walk out this life. One thing about my own walk, my own Christian walk, is uh, mostly the, the, the largest thing I can remember is being delivered from is profanity. I've been a police officer for 30 years. I'm a veteran. I was in the military for five years, and we know how to use profanity. I think it's a requirement, maybe a, I don't think it's actually a course, but there's definitely a lot of on-the-job training. And after I came to faith, I noticed immediately that God convicted me of it. And I certainly can't tell you that he's delivered me from it completely, but I can tell you that my walk now is completely different from my walk then. Even so much as, as even watching military films, which I, which I really enjoy, things like Black Hawk Down and uh, We Are Soldiers, two of my favorites, they are liberally sprinkled with obscenities and vulgarity. And on occasion, I can just not feel the weight of that and continue watching, but had an experience over this last week where I sat down to watch Jack Ryan, the second season on Amazon. And I'm firmly convinced that when it says original Amazon show, what that means is cussing every other word. So what I noticed is that in the middle of the probably the first 10 minutes, there was a dialogue going on between Jack Ryan 
and his boss, CIA persons, and uh, in the middle of it, the F word was basically being used, every other word, which, see, which struck me as really unrealistic. I've been in the military for five years, I've been a police officer for 30, and I can't remember, I know a lot of people that, that, that cuss, but I can't remember a single conversation I've had with any of them or overheard a single conversation where it was used like that in such frequency that it made the, the sentence completely ridiculous. And so I turned it off. The Holy Spirit convicted me of sitting there pondering whether or not it could be a real conversation for people to use that many bad words that frequently, and uh, I obeyed. So I turned it off, and as I mentioned, that's pretty much all of our walks with the Christian life, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be obscenities or vulgarity, but it certainly means that that is the job of the Holy Spirit. He constantly convicts us of the sin in our life and gives us the power to overcome it so that we can be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Today's passage is an attention getter for Christ's hometown. Christ gives them a stern warning about the dangers of not repenting. And it's pretty formulaic. What we see being broken out by Jesus is he gives a warning to these three cities, an explanation, and then a comparison to a couple other cities that he tells us if the mighty works had been done there, they would have repented. And in today's passage, we see him calling specifically his hometown to repentance and telling them the consequences if they don't. And it's really hard for me to believe that he needed to do this because this is where Jesus spent most of his time. Surely they believed having Christ walk among them, commit various miracles among them, but we see that they don't. Jesus lived in this region and performs miracles, so how can it be that they don't accept Christ? They followed him around if they were asked They probably would have said they were a follower of Christ because that's kind of the definition, following someone around. But we see that in this case, just following Jesus from one miracle to another doesn't make them believers. And that's the difference between them and his disciples. The disciples repented and believed. And in today's passage, he's telling these three cities that know him well, have seen him perform miracles, If you don't repent today, it will be worse for you for eternity. Worse, in fact, than Sodom, who was destroyed by fire because there weren't even 10 righteous people in the entire city. Look with me at verse 20. You see, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent All modern translations diverge from the King James, which uses the word abrade, which merely means to mock or to scold. Now they they use this as, I'm sorry, now it says denounce, which has a much heavier meaning. In this context, denounce means to publicly declare to be wrong or evil, which is much different than scolding. It's much more serious than scolding. Jesus is not being gentle here. And we've seen this word used in Matthew before in a heavier context. It's used in Matthew 5, verse 11. 
It says, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So even here we see Jesus making a comparison to what we can face from the prophets. Excuse me. (coughs) Make what we can face just like the prophets. This passage is especially relevant because he's already told his followers this won't be any easier for them than it was for the prophets. The best example is the one he just mentioned, John, the greatest among prophets. And one of my favorite quotes from Twitter this week is, beware of prophets that enjoy their job. I don't think of the prophets in the scriptures enjoying their job. Reluctant. That's how I like to think of the prophets. Most knew that they were probably going to be killed, beaten, or always rejected while they took a message of God to the people. A good example of this is Elijah's lament, who says in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. You need to be quiet. The consistent message of Christ is that he wasn't accepted, therefore we won't be either. But we must guard against thinking less of people who are made in the image of God. That is the danger of deciding who is worthy of receiving the gospel message. These are the people that we're called to take the gospel to. And Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who submit to or perform homosexual acts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul writes this to guard against haughtiness, but it's encouraging and sustaining these words that tell us that we were once like that, but the power of God is what changed us. That is the gospel message. That is what Jesus is telling. And the miracles are to confirm that he has the power to do exactly what he says he does. Our call is to extend a hand to sinners, not to point the finger. But ultimately, there is no salvation without repentance. The gospel without repentance is not the gospel. Jesus' first proclamation as he began his public ministry in Matthew 4 was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. His first command is to repent. And that is the purpose of the miracles, to produce repentance and incite faith. Repentance, there's a couple different words in the, in the New Testament that, that are used here. Metaneia is to change one's mind, and it's almost always translated as repent. It's the term that's used in our passage here in Matthew. Jesus began to denounce their cities because they had not changed their mind about who he was. 
We also see this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The other term that is related to repentance in the New Testament is epistrepho, which means to turn around. It means to be headed one way and then to turn around from where you're headed in order to go the other direction. So an example of this is in Acts 11.21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number of believed turned to the Lord. And that's that word, epistrepho. These two words work hand in hand with each other and a couple times we see them together. An example of this is in Acts 3.19, we see both of them used where it says, repent, which is metaneia, therefore, and turn back, epistrepho, that your sins may be blotted out. So we see this example of repentance, the words used, if we give a definition, we would say that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction or a change of life. And this is what Jesus is looking for. A.W. Pink says, it is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. And that's the difference. We see these people following Jesus but not with a godly sorrow over their sin. They are simply looking for more miracles. If we look back at verse 21, we see him specifically address two cities that know him well. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 22 says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And again, we see this, this formula that Jesus is using where he makes a charge, then he makes a verdict. Otherwise, you can also see this warning in there to the cities. He's telling them, woe to you. And then he explains other cities like Tyre and Sidon would have repented if the works had been done there. Jesus knows these places well, probably better than, anyone, better than anywhere else. He spent most of his life there. It's Jesus' backyard. He lived there, he grew up there, and he started his ministry there. And the first place he mentions Chorazin, well, the only other place Chorazin is mentioned is in the parallel passage found in Luke 10. And this city is no longer a city. Nobody lives there. It's established in the first century, but it was destroyed by earthquake in the mid-300s. But we've heard a lot about Bethsaida. It's very familiar to us. You've heard it talked about, and when we talked about the calling of the disciples, several of them are from there, including Philip, Andrew, and Peter. It means house of fishing. It's recorded as the town that Jesus retreated to, and when, he, when the crowd followed him there, he fed the, the 5,000 there with two loaves and five fish. It's also here that we see that Peter confesses who Jesus is. This is where the question comes, who do you say that I am? And Jesus confesses, sorry, Peter confesses, you are the son of God. In Mark 6, Jesus is walking out of Bethsaida into the Sea of Galilee, literally onto the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus walks on water. This is where Jesus heals the blind man by spitting on his eyes. 
These are pretty big miracles. These are mighty works. These are great works of God. It's also mentioned several times in the Old Testament, but it's not mentioned as Bethsaida. Many people also believe that Bethsaida is a good candidate for Geshur, which some might remember from David's family history. David's third wife, Makah, was from here, and she was the daughter of the Talmai king. Their children, together, were Absalom and Tamar. And if you don't know the story, you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 13. You can read the account of Absalom killing Amnon, David's first son. That account is about David's son Amnon lusting after Tamar, his sister, and raping her even after she tells Amnon to go to their father David and just give him, give her to him. Scripture says that David is enraged when he hears about the rape, but he does nothing. So the prince acts where the king does not, and Absalom kills Amnon and flees. Where does he flee? He flees to Geshur. He spends three years there under the refuge of the other king, his grandfather, the king of Tamai. This city fell to the Assyrians in 734 and the people were dispersed. But on this day, the city isn't falling into the hands of the enemy. The citizens aren't in danger of being dragged off to a foreign land. The danger is significantly significantly greater to them today. What they're facing today is the wrath of God. Jesus is pronouncing woes on them. And it's a word, it's an onomatopoeia, that sounds like the word it describes, like bang or splash, but it's also a word that the prophets use frequently. Usually it's a prophetic pronouncement on the people disobeying God. If you read the minor prophets, you'll see the word used quite a bit, including several times against Tyre and Sidon, which are mentioned in this passage. Amos, who you heard from earlier, mentions them as well. Together, woe to Tyre and Sidon. The original audience would have been very familiar with this word, woe. The Bible is full of these pronouncements. And usually the prophets crying woe are crying it against Israel. The Hebrew equivalent for this is used approximately 50 times in the Old Testament to pronounce judgment. These are often called the woe oracles, where the prophets pronounce judgment on the people or nations or kings for not obeying God. Jesus is prophesying judgment against these three cities that he's grown up in. We know that he spent a lot of time there. Later in the passage, he pronounces woe on Capernaum, which we know is essentially was the hub for his earthly ministry. In fact, after the temptation in the wilderness, it's talked about in Matthew 4, Jesus withdraws to Capernaum, and it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And it goes on to speak that prophecy, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
excuse me, so you see that from, for those dwelling in this region, under the shadow of death, on them a light is dawned, and that light is Jesus. He brings the light. It's not what this looks like is going on here, though. Jesus is not congratulating them for seeing the light, not at all. This passage is quoting Isaiah foretelling of a light dawning to people dwelling in darkness, and it's showing Jesus coming. But he says, great works were done, but you wouldn't repent. And he's reminding them that they, once they saw, they would have seen Jesus feed the 5,000 people. Maybe they themselves were fed by the fish and the loaves. Maybe they saw from the shore the calming of the sea. Maybe they saw Jesus walking on the water. They probably saw him healing the blind man. But they still don't believe. And tragically, they don't repent. You can be assured that they want the miracles, but what they don't want is the miracle worker. And he is warning Chorazin and Bethsaida that they are worse off than the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon which would have been really, really problematic for the original audience. To believe that they were worse off than pagan cities, that would have been a tough pill for them to swallow. Tyre and Sidon are also fishing villages. They're on the shore of the Mediterranean. And there's a lot of commonalities there. And it was, uh, Tyre and Sidon, a frequent object of prophetic oracles. Minor prophets, again, they talk about them quite a bit. And Ezekiel himself pronounces judgment against the city, chapter 26 of, of his book, <coughs> excuse me, promising Tyre that the Lord will bring judgment against them. It says there, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, am I against you? I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. And that, in fact, happens when God uses many nations to tear apart Tyre and Sidon, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, who laid siege to the city for 13 years. Tyre narrowly escapes being plundered by them. But then he has to face the Assyrians, Egypt, and Greece. Alexander the Great becomes the next king God uses to judge Tyre, and Alexander the Great conquers Tyre, building a great causeway and sacking the city. So God pronounces destruction for Tyre. God delivers destruction for Tyre through nations. Jesus tells these three cities in his hometown, it'll be worse for you than for them. The cities will fare better on the day of judgment than you will. Tyre wasn't always an enemy of the Jews, and several examples of this relationship that we can see between these cities exist in Scripture. And one is found in 1 Kings chapter 5, where we hear about the king of Tyre, this man named Hiram. And Hiram was a guy who says in 1 Kings 5, as soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. Hiram is also a man who helped him build the temple. He helped Solomon rebuild the temple by sending him cedar and cypress. And here, what's interesting is that this is a pagan king. 
Let me see if I can get rid of that before it's really distracting. Um, so what we see here is a pagan king using the word Yahweh in his blessing. Using the sacred word Yahweh in his blessing. Christ seems to indicate that some sinners are more easily converted where others are not. And he says this, when you look at this passage, he says that they, long ago they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So the inference here is that not only would they have, they would have been deep in repentance by now. They would have repented long ago. And they would have repented deeply in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus is telling them that he wouldn't still be preaching repentance to them now and performing miracles because they would have already repented if they'd seen what these cities had seen. To prove his point, he says, and we can, we can see in Ezekiel here, it says, you're not sent to a people of foreign speech in a hard language, but to a house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech in a hard language, whose words you cannot understand Surely, if I sent you to such, they would listen to you, but the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. That's what Ezekiel is saying. God is telling him about the people he's going to go to. The house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. Hard-heartedness to those that you think are pliable is nothing new. We'll also see the name Tyre pop up again in Matthew 15 when we see this faith of a Canaanite woman who's begging for Jesus to heal her daughter who is possessed by demons. Matthew 15 says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says to her, woman, you have a great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter, her daughter was healed at that moment. So Jesus is telling these three cities, if the miracles had happened there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he's got this example that he can point to, which is going to happen later on. But people are going to faith, coming to faith in these Gentile cities. And he knows they will. And this example, this woman repenting, puts her faith in Christ to heal her daughter. And he does, bless you, and talks about her great faith. Jesus knows that they're going to repent, but he also knows that the people in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum won't. And he's warning them again that if they don't, it's going to be worse for them. Let's keep looking at the passage. If you look at verse 23 with me, you'll see, In you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And this second reproach follows the same kind of pattern of charge and a verdict. The verdict, Sodom will fare better than you on judgment day than will Jesus' own city of Capernaum. Notice that Jesus foregoes the woe pronouncement here to instead kind of ask a rhetorical question. It seems implied that the people believe that they will be exalted in heaven. And Jesus corrects them emphatically telling them, in fact, they're not going to heaven. They're going the other way. They're going to Hades, the place of the dead. Jesus' use of words here 
seems to get his point across, but just so there's no confusion on what they face, he compares them to Sodom and reminds them, like Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the miracles that they witnessed had been performed in Sodom, it would still be thriving today. His, his point is that he is the true miracle. He is the revelation from God. There is nothing else that's coming. There are no more mighty works. He is the greatest work the earth has ever seen. The New International Commentary on Matthew says that the Greek term Hades is properly the name of the God of the underworld and the place of the dead. And sometimes it carries overtones of judgment since the proud and mighty get there by being stripped of their power and humbled in death. And that is what he's telling them. It's worse for them. These three Galilean towns would face severe judgment because they receive such clear and sustained revelation. Greater access to truth comes greater accountability to believe it. I feel like I need to channel Peter Parker and the Peter Parker principle with great power comes great responsibility. That is what Jesus is saying. This is what's been revealed to you and still you will not repent. If we look at verse 24, we see the third point, eternity is worse. Eternal damnation is worse than fire from heaven. I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. We've all read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed in Genesis because of their wickedness. And so have the Galileans. And while Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed for wickedness, these three Galilean towns will be judged for rejecting God's greatest revelation. And they will be judged harshly. And Jesus is reminding them he's done mighty works in these Galilean towns. It's the center of Jesus' ministry. But what do they want? They want more miracles. They don't want to repent. His ministry is supposed to produce godly repentance and incite the faith. And we should ask ourselves, what does it produce in our lives? Does it produce godly sorrow? Have you repented of your sin? Do you want the miracles? Or do you want the miracle worker? That is the treasure. And how satisfied are you with your life in Christ? Is sin having free reign in your flesh? If it is, then put it to death, friends. Jesus is calling us to repentance. He's calling us to repentance each and every day to walk out a life of faith and obedience, which leads to joy. That's also promised. And Gabby, my daughter, just got married on August 31st, which was wonderful. And they were supposed to leave for the Dominican Republic on the, the first. And the only problem was this little storm named Dorian. And you might have heard of it. Uh, it's actually, the, uh, according to Wikipedia, Hurricane Dorian is the most intense tropical storm in the history. With one minute sustained winds, at 185 miles per hour. 
And while they were deciding what to do, they were going to take a cruise. Their, their cruise line got rerouted to the Bahamas. So they thought that that would be a better deal, yet what ended up happening is the Bahamas were destroyed by Hurricane Dorian, considered the worst natural disaster in their history. In the midst of this, the kids couldn't decide if they wanted to go or to cancel their trip. And my sister and brother-in-law were in town from Orlando, and they were getting ready to fly out on Sunday also. And they had to fly out on Sunday. They were actually going to stay a couple extra days, but they needed to fly out on Sunday because the hurricane was due to end Monday or Tuesday, and they were going to close the airport. So for, they stayed with us, and we saw for several hours them wrangling with whether or not to, to stay and wonder whether their house was destroyed or to go and try and bunker down or hunker down in the middle of a hurricane. Meanwhile, my daughter and her brand new uh, husband are wondering whether or not they're going to get on a boat in Orlando and sail to two places right in the path of a hurricane. My vote was no, and they ended up canceling their trip. But this is an example of you can watch the news, and the news has gotten really good at projecting paths, and we see these these multiple paths being projected and forecasted about where this hurricane might go. And people are waiting to the last minute to decide while the storm's approaching whether or not they're going to be destroyed. People die every year staying in their homes hoping to wait out these mo the largest, most powerful storms in the history of mankind. This is always the case. Should I stay or should I go? Sometimes you can see them trying to do things in the midst of 100-mile-per-hour winds, like surf in the street and things like that. And even as the news cameras point towards the ocean, you see this massive eyewall descending onto the coast. People are frolicking while certain danger approaches. This is kind of like this passage. This is what Jesus is getting at. He is saying, don't wait for a sign because I am the sign. There won't be another sign. The day of salvation is at hand. The storm is here. You're in the middle of it. Do not delay. Repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is here. This is Jesus' message. And even though the biggest miracle of all time was in their midst, they rejected it. They rejected him. His offer of forgiveness is better than any physical healing or gift. That is something as Christians we need to take hold of, cling to, and rest in, and surrender to. And if you have repented of your sin and asked for forgiveness, God forgives you of it and he remembers it no more. And this is a tough truth to keep hold of because we can be pulled back so many different times. But that offer of forgiveness and that promise that God remembers it no more is it's cemented in the body and blood of Christ. While he remembers it no more, we sometimes do. But we do not have to fear a day of judgment. And it is certain that we will fare better 
than Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. And that is a message that we need to take out to our neighbors, our co-workers, this gospel of peace with God. And we need to do it before it's too late. I just think back to that passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. That is what some of you were, but, but one of the best words in the Bible. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Let's pray.